0: Let us pray. Holy God, by your Spirit, enlighten us, illumine us, inspire us, not for our sakes, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading is from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and then 8 through 16. Hear these words of scripture. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place and Builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. In a conversation I had with Becky a couple of days ago, We determined that we have entered a new liturgical season. Now, although our bulletin cover, if you look, it says it is the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. We determined that maybe we should have changed it to the first Sunday after John. (laughs) Yes, it is a strange new liturgical season indeed. Last week's farewell celebration for John was a good one. That has been the unanimous assessment of everyone that has spoken with me, and I hope you agree. We celebrated the 18 rich years of John Wilkinson's ministry with us. Many people gave voice to that. There was great music, laughter and tears, A wonderful picnic, a hymn sing, name that tune. Gifts, expressions of love and affection, so much to celebrate, so much to cherish. You did it well, and rejoice in that. Last Sunday was an important marker in the life of this church, marking the end of a particular leg of this church's journey. Not the end of the journey, but just one leg of that journey, albeit a significant one. And I can imagine that for a long long time to come, we will be talking about the Wilkinson years, just as many of a certain generation here talk about the Hudnut years. We paused last Sunday to give thanks. And on Monday, we began another leg of the journey. A leg that our esteemed clerk of session, Chris Bench, Chris waves so that people know who you are, that Chris and I have designated the pre-interim period. It's kind of a crazy place, right? It is phase one of the transition. Now, our session, and for those of you who are not well-versed in Presbyterian speak, our session is our church council, our leadership board, if you will. Our session has already begun the process necessary to bring an interim pastor and head of staff here, a person that will help our congregation process John's departure, to think anew about today's ministry context to look towards the future and eventually prepare to call a new installed pastor but even good processes being what they are that's going to take some months so here we are in this pre-interim period transition phase one this time between then and the future This oddly new liturgical season of liminal time with all of its strangeness and foreignness. The cognitive dissonance that comes with dwelling in a place where things look the same, yet seeming not quite as settled as they once did. So what do we do with this? How do we live in this time? What does it look like? And where do we go? And do our sacred texts have anything to say about times like these? It turns out they have plenty to say. Today's texts from Genesis and Hebrews both lift up Abraham and Sarah, all stars of the Old Testament. Now, I know I have shared this with at least some of you, but for those of you who may not be aware, do you know that I am a direct descendant of Abraham and Sarah? Did you know that? It's true. And this is the point where I get a lot of funny looks, just like you're giving me now. I am their direct descendant, my paternal great-grandparents, were Abraham and Sarah Dirksen. (laughs) So there you go. Okay, not quite the same. But I do love the stories of the biblical Abraham and Sarah, only in part because of their shared names. Hebrews 11 looks back to the Genesis story of their wandering. God told Abraham to leave his home and head toward the land that God would show him, make him a great nation, and bless him. But here's the thing. It was a very general promise, lacking any specifics whatsoever. Abraham's problem, writes Dennis Bratcher, was how to live in the real world in light of such an open-ended and ambiguous promise. How could he translate that promise into daily living? Go to the land that I will show you. It's like leaving on a road trip without a GPS or a map and not having any idea where you're headed. When we look at chapters 12 through 22 of Genesis, we see Abraham and Sarah travel as alien sojourners from Ur to Haran to south into Canaan to Bethel toward the Negev. And then they have to leave the promised land for Egypt because there is a famine, some promise. And then they're once again out of Egypt, back to the Negev, back to Bethel, back to Canaan, and to the region between Kadesh and Shur, to 'er Beersheba and to Hebron. That's a lot of places, a lot of wandering, a lot of pitch tents on the journey toward an ambiguous somewhere. It's often said that faith is a journey. In fact, I believe, like others, that faith is a lot less about the destination and a lot more about the journey. If you're on a journey, you're away from the comforts of home. And unless you travel the same familiar road all of the time, you are a stranger, an alien. And in an ancient Near Eastern culture like that of our text, a stranger or alien had to endure verbal abuse, disgrace, economic mistreatment because of their perceived lower social status. It seems not much has changed. To be a stranger and an alien is to be unsettled, to be in between, to be in transition, and even dispossessed. In a Christian century essay, Lawrence Wood wrote about the Jews' expulsion from Spain in 1492, after living there for centuries. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella had told them they must be baptized or flee. Well, those that chose to go had to leave their gold, their silver, and their homes behind. And besides a few simple belongings, all they took with them was their faith. Writes Wood, these Sephardic Jews still keep enormous, ancient house keys that last touched their locks some 500 years ago. Symbols of dispossession and of hope that someday they might go home. It's not unlike the Palestinian refugees we encountered at the Janine refugee camp, who also keep their keys to the homes from which they were expelled in 1948 in hopes that they too can one day return. And in light of my recent study, pilgrimage to that region, I have been reflecting more deeply on the notion of pilgrimage as a way to find meaning in these experiences of in-betweenness. You see, a pilgrimage intentionally takes you from holy place to holy place as you stop to reflect, to commemorate the sacredness of what transpired at each of them. Now, in that part of the world, many of the traditional holy sites cannot be verified as historical. It's simply that legend says they are. Do we really believe the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is the actual site where Jesus was born? Is the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron the actual place where Abraham and Sarah are buried? Our tour leader, Melanie Duguid may faculty at Colgate-Rochester Crozier Divinity School, my beloved alma mater, she suggested the concept of a crude holiness. That even though his, the historical accuracy of these sites was questionable at best, they were still holy because millions of pilgrims have been stopping to pause and to reflect at these places since at least the third century. That in and of them itself makes them holy. A crude holiness. And that distinction was helpful to experience those traditional sites as holy. And I think there is also a crude holiness in those places of dispossession where people struggle to claim their rights. Where people make a way out of no way where people endure and thrive in spite of the ridicule and the impossibility of their situation. Now, this is not to romanticize it, for that would be abusive. But it is to say that it's holy because God meets people where they are most vulnerable, most unsettled. And in this, there is hope. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed in a foreign land. By faith, he looked forward to this city whose foundations are designed and built by God. In the case of the Sephardic Jews we heard about, Wood wrote, the irony is that somehow this terrible history of dispossession didn't destroy their faith. It established it. All those settled, comfortable ancient peoples have crumbled into the sands, while the Jews have survived with their faith intact. At times they've had nothing but faith, he wrote, and maybe, just maybe that's the key. Faith cannot be severed from hope, Craddock says. They are one. The homeland that Abraham saw from a distance is one seen with eyes of faith, seen and greeted as a pilgrim would greet a destination coming into view. Or, in the words of Daniel Schultz, hope is the content of faith. Now, if you read all 11 chapters of Abraham's story in Genesis, you'll quickly learn that Abraham's behavior was not always exemplary. His character is complex, flawed, and at times dishonorable. And yet, the promise of God still held, as it does for us. So even when we can't see where we're going, consider the posture of pilgrimage, pausing along the way to seek out in faith that which is hopeful and holy. Faith blooms in dispossession, says Wood. When you don't have anything else to hold on to, when you can no longer clutch lesser things, you hold on to your God, and your God holds on to you. And maybe that's the crux of it. Maybe the question in our own pilgrimage of faith shouldn't be, where are we going, but to whom are we going? Not where is home, but who makes a home for us? Not what is our end result, but with whom are we in relationship? Even in this transitional time in the life of Third Church, God's call to us to be in ministry to and with the world does not diminish one iota. We minister in a world that's an ongoing tale of strangers and foreigners for whom God is not ashamed to be their God. This month, it's raids on undocumented immigrants, leaving children caught in an impossible middle It's the cities of El Paso and Dayton that find themselves in the strange and foreign territory of assault weapons and mass shootings. It's those who are dispossessed because our city and our nation still privilege whiteness. Christ is the one who has called the church into being giving it all that is necessary for its mission in the world. And time and time again in Scripture, the places that you see God at work, it is in those transitional and in-between times. On Monday morning of this week, a dear colleague emailed me this prayer by Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. The fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Friends, God calls us to step out, to leave what we know, to lean into the unsettledness of this strange new liturgical season, and through it all, hold on to our God, who holds on to us. Amen.